0: Coming up on Focus Black Oklahoma, we explore why citizens in Black and Indigenous communities harbor a deep distrust for vaccines and the history that validates their concerns. The Ku Klux Klan's attempts to recruit new members in several small towns right after the presidential election. We sit down to find out what it takes to fight for life on death row and the creative allies necessary to prove innocence. We spotlight a leader behind an organization that addresses the lack of Black women in executive roles in corporate America. We look at the horizon of Oklahoma's first all-Black town and the ambitions of the Black women leading its development efforts. And we follow a performer whose talent takes her from local venues to the national stage and how she succeeds even through rejection. All of this and more on Focus Black
1: Oklahoma. Support for Focus Black Oklahoma on the KOSU Podcast Network comes from the Black Church Traditions and African American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary with a weekly chapel service celebrating Black History and African Heritage Month online at wherefaithleads.com heritage.
2: Black Oklahoma, I'm Ariel Davis.
0: And I'm Colby Webster.
2: Oklahoma and the nation's COVID-19 infection rate are trending downward after a brutal winter surge of the pandemic. The reduced infections may be credited to the availability of the vaccine. But for Black and Indigenous folks, two of the pandemic's hardest hit communities, the willingness to accept the vaccine may take more convincing than other groups. As Allison Herrera reports, the federal government's history of medical experiments and forced sterilization may be the reason so many are hesitant to get this life-saving treatment. When Oklahoma City
3: resident Lieta Osborne-Sampson heard about the COVID-19 vaccine being offered to her as a healthcare worker, her reaction was,
4: it, My first thought
5: is that it was
3: so early to bring out a vaccine When we have been under the understanding that it had to take some time. Osborne Sampson is a seminal freedman, a nurse, a minister in her local church and 58 with no underlying health conditions. Her grandfather, Sam Osborne, worked in medicine, too. He was a doctor during a time of intense racism and segregation in Oklahoma.
5: He would help anyone because at that time, uh, people of color could not go to white doctors. So he did a whole lot of work
3: in that area. But even though she comes from a background of healing people, she's still hesitant about getting the vaccine. And she's not alone. Many Black people feel this way. A study published by the Kaiser Family Foundation last fall found that about half of Black adults they surveyed say they would not want to get a coronavirus vaccine, even if it was deemed safe by scientists and freely available. While thousands of Oklahomans are anxiously awaiting their turn to get a coronavirus vaccine, there remain hurdles when it comes to convincing members of the Black and Indigenous community to get their shot, even though they are some of the hardest hit by the virus.
5: I think of all the experimenting that they did
3: on us back in the day, um, It makes you reluctant. Osborne Sampson is talking about the Tuskegee experiment from the 1930s. It involved black farmers who were told they would get treatment for syphilis. Instead, public health officials studied what happened to these men as the disease went untreated. The study lasted for 40 years and was followed by public outcry and eventually deemed unethical. Dr. Angela Hawkins says she's heard a mix of things from her patients regarding the vaccine. Hawkins is the president of the Oklahoma Black Physicians Alliance, a group of doctors committed to addressing health disparities in the Black community. Some people, she says, want to get it but have a wait-and-see response. She says she understands the hesitancy. You think back to just the history of how Black people have been treated within the medical community, um, and it just kind of has become this generational uh, system of, of not quite trusting what people are doing or what their motives are for that they will be taken care of and listened to. Hawkins says historically, Black people have received poorer quality health care, are underinsured or not insured at all, and have been treated in systems that are underfunded. She says it's all about building a relationship with your patients, not just so you can talk to them about the vaccine, but getting seen to take care of other health issues too. And, and giving them support and, and letting them feel like you are actually hearing them Um, And listening to what they're telling you um, and feeling like you're you're taking their concerns seriously and addressing their needs. Dr. Ronald Shaw, the chief medical officer for the Osage Nation, says the same is true when it comes to treating patients at the Tribal Nations Wajaji Health Center in Pahuska. He says he's had to break down misinformation circulating in the indigenous community about the vaccine.
6: I've even heard some people believe there's microchips in vaccines and this is a test to to track the population of the United States that gets the vaccine. So it's really all over the place. That last one is not the dominant uh, opinion held by by people we we talked to. We've heard that, though.
3: Ultimately, Shaw says he tries to explain to people the risk of not getting the vaccine and just how sick some people can get, no matter how healthy they are. He doesn't want to write people's concerns off. He listens and tries to explain that this isn't a hoax. Shaw says he's heard and takes seriously Native people's distrust with the federal government. In the 1960s and 70s, Indian Health Service sterilized thousands of Native American women without their consent or knowledge.
6: So we're still looking at that, and I think, tribes do remember that. Uh, I think that, you know, for me, So much of this is led by a a faceless federal agency called the CDC or HHS located, you know, thousands of miles away from Indian country.
3: He says that distance and that facelessness can create distrust and animosity. He says the CDC has tried to partner with some of the tribes and work with American Indian physicians to get a more culturally appropriate message out to people who may want the vaccine but need someone who looks like them and is from their community to talk to about concerns. Lieta Osborne-Sampson agrees. She wants a little more reassurance, which she says she's gotten a little with a new president in the White
5: House. Well, it, it, it depends on who's doing the talking. Is these the people that we can trust, uh, have we been able to trust them in the past? Now, since they changed administrations in the White House, I think that brought me a little closer into to saying, eh, maybe they're okay, maybe
3: it'll... it'll they won't hurt it. For now, she'll be taking a wait and see response before eventually deciding to get the shot. I'm Allison Herrera. <laughs>
7: Over the span of a few days in January, several rural county residents awoke to recruitment flyers from the Ku Klux Klan on their lawns. Nick Alexandrov has
8: the story. They came late in silence. No one noticed anything unusual that night in Marietta.
6: I haven't heard anybody you know, say, hey, there was a suspicious car or some people sneaking around. Nothing, nothing like that.
8: That city council member Cordell Lawrence talking about the night the Ku Klux Klan swept through Love County. On the morning of Saturday, January twenty third, dozens of Marietta's twenty seven hundred residents made unsettling discoveries.
6: Uh, we awoke to uh, KKK flyers spread throughout the town. Uh, one half of the town had been hit, and it, it didn't. At first, it was. Uh, it kind of seemed like it was targeted at minorities, uh, but as the you know, kind of morning went on, it was like, well, no, it's not really, doesn't seem to be targeted specifically at minorities, it's just um, just the half of the town, really. And there were about 70-ish flyers that were left out uh, in people's yards.
8: Those flyers urged recipients to join the Church of the Ku Klux Klan. Cordale explained that there's no history of Klan activity in Marietta, just 15 miles north of the Texas border.
6: So I was born and raised in Marietta. I've been been in Marietta my entire life. Um, Only time I wasn't in Marietta was when I I was at college at Cameron and Lawton. I've never encountered anything like this in Marietta.
8: Neither have older city residents like Lawrence L. Anderson.
4: Born and raised right here in Love County. I pastor a church here. I'm on the city council, president of the Chamber of Commerce. They hit the wrong community. Yeah, no, we have never, never had this happen.
8: But Marietta was not the only place the Klan targeted recently. It also dropped flyers in Lebanon and Kingston, east of Marietta on State Highway 32. And a week earlier, the Klan left recruitment leaflets farther north, in Peckham, a 25-minute drive northwest from Ponca City. Cordell is asking why these places and why now?
6: Initially, I thought, well, we just saw the um, rate of the Capitol building. I started digging and digging. It's, it's like the further I dig, the more I'm like just blown away
8: by it. I started digging as well. I began at the website printed on the Klan flyers. That site names KKK church chapters in 24 states, including Oklahoma. The group promoted its sooner state recruitment drive on Stormfront, the neo-Nazi internet forum, a January 26th post explained that the organization wants new members and has chapters all across the state. The post's author goes by the username Texas KKK, and the KKK church lists a Texas address on its website, P.O. Box 97 in DCAB. Other hate groups over the years have received mail at this same address. The Aryan Freedom Network the Texas White Knights of the KKK. And just a few weeks ago, a collective of Israeli anti-fascist hackers claimed to have revealed the identity of the man paying to use this P.O. box. His name is George Stout, and he owns the G&R Trading Post in Decab. The Texarkana Gazette ran a story on this guns and ammunition store in 2015. The article described Stout as well-versed in gun laws. And Stout's business license, which the Israeli hackers seem to have obtained, permits him to deal in Title II National Firearms Act weapons like machine guns and grenades. When I contacted Stout, who describes himself as a firm anti-communist, he responded by saying, I haven't been a member of the Klan since the late 1980s. I had an FFL, a federal firearms license, and let it expire several years ago as health reasons caught up with my age. Whatever Stout's role in the KKK church is or is not, Marietta held a peace rally to counteract the group's brand of bigotry on Sunday, January 31st. Under a cloudless sky, some 120 people, most of them wearing masks, gathered in Schellenberger Park to hear local civic and religious leaders speak, pray, and sing against hatred. Here's Dr. Wayne Lawson, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Ardmore.
1: This is not Carter County. This is not Jackson County. This is not Kiowa County. This is not Oklahoma County. Nothing wrong with those counties, but this is the county of love.
8: Dr. Lawson issued a warning, to and outlined a project for his community.
1: But let me caution us this afternoon and inform you as to why the hate group selected Marietta. It's because they saw a small crack in our armor. Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in America. White folks go here, black folks go across the tracks, Hispanics go there. We've got to do a better job of sharing our pulpits and getting to know one another. We can't wait till next year. We can't wait till after COVID. We have to start making that change now.
8: The Klan's stepped-up recruitment drive makes this an urgent task. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Nick Alexandrov in Marietta.
2: and now headlines from across the state. Maxine Horner, who served for 18 years as an Oklahoma state lawmaker, died at age 88 on Sunday, February 7th. Horner was one of the first Black women elected to the Oklahoma Senate and a lifelong advocate for Tulsa race massacre survivors and descendants. She helped create the Race Right Commission, as it was called in the late 90s when it started, which renewed interest and sought oral histories and artifacts of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Horner, a 1951 graduate of Booker T. Washington High School, the only Black high school during segregation, was a co-founder and board member of the Greenwood Cultural Center. A bill authored by Oklahoma Senator Shane Jett seeks to,
7: quote, prohibit public schools and charter schools from teaching or training students to believe certain divisive concepts, unquote. Divisive concepts are explained as, quote, the United States is fundamentally racist or sexist, unquote, or that, quote, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Among other definitions in the bill's language, Oklahoma public and charter school teachers could be fired and not re-employed for teaching these supposedly divisive concepts, according to the bill. Jet is a Cherokee citizen who represents District 17, which includes Pottawatomie County and Eastern Oklahoma County. A vote on the measure
2: is pending. The Bartlesville Police Department will be selecting seven to 10 officers to undergo FBI training. The partnership is a response to the July United States Supreme Court decision in McGirt versus Oklahoma. The ruling found that the state lacks jurisdiction in crimes committed on Muscogee Creek land involving tribal citizens. Although Bartlesville resides in Cherokee territory, the FBI approached BPD in anticipation of the Supreme Court ruling applying to Cherokee Nation citizens in the future. This partnership is said to remove duplicative efforts between the two agencies. A date for the federal training has not yet been determined. After the death
7: of George Floyd in Minneapolis, community members of Lawton, Oklahoma, the most racially diverse community in the state, prompted city leadership to create a race relations commission. The Lawton City Council unanimously voted this month to adopt the ordinances that creates the commission, which will work towards community collaborations that identify racial barriers, promote racial unity, develop opportunities for racial equality, and implement solutions. A citizens' advisory board was also catalyzed from 2020's uprisings to work with the Lawton Police Department.
2: Oklahoma educators aren't allowing the weather to prevent them from finding better ways to help their students. During a one day virtual conference, nearly 4,500 teachers gathered to receive trauma informed training, a framework designed to help teachers address students' academic, mental health, and behavioral needs. The Oklahoma Department of Education has included $18.2 million in its budget request for fiscal year 2022. The program would help Oklahoma schools increase counselor positions and close the student-to-counselor ratio gap. Currently, the Oklahoma student-to-counselor ratio is 412 to 1, in comparison to the American School Counselor Association's recommended ratio of 250 to 1.
7: After winning a $1 billion lawsuit in the 90s, Black farmers are still struggling to receive equitable support from the United States Department of Agriculture. Decades of discrimination and violence, beginning in 1910, have cost Black farmers profits ranging from 40 to $250 billion, according to one economics professor. With a new Democratic majority in Congress, several proposals are in the works to help Black farmers. At least one proposal includes language to suggest that the USDA buy land and give up to 160 acres to Black farmers who agree to use it for agriculture. In addition, the bill would provide debt relief for farmers who didn't receive compensation as part of the USDA discrimination settlement. The House Agriculture Committee has recently increased its efforts to help Black and minority farmers by approving $4 billion in debt relief. The relief is part of the Coronavirus Relief Bill.
2: You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma.
4: Hey, it's Don Data. Tune in Fridays at 11 p.m. for another episode of No One Man, where we explore the eclectic sound of hip-hop. That's No One Man, Fridays at 11 p.m., right here on KOSU The Spy.
9: Your donation of just $5 a month is a great way to become a member of KOSU and support the programming that you love. Make your donation today and become a member at KOSU.org.
2: In this story, we follow vocalist Faye Moffat as she goes from Tulsa venues to the national stage. Mika Nicole has more.
10: I walked into Blue House Media in downtown Tulsa to interview singer-songwriter Faye Moffett as she was recording one of her latest singles. Faye is an Arkansas native who moved to Tulsa in 1996 with her mother and four sisters when she was just 10 years old. She started singing at an early age encouraged by her parents and influenced by the legendary singer Anita Baker.
5: My parents definitely told me, you know, my mom, she used to sing around the house on Sundays at my mom's. We'd be singing and cleaning on Sundays, playing Anita Baker and different songs that she loved to, to listen to. With my mom when my dad, we were at church singing. I definitely got it from both of them, aunties and uncles, listened to our little concerts that we'd throw. And we thought we was the Jackson 5, we was the Hamilton 5.
10: Faye, a woman of strong spiritual faith and conviction, talks about how she discovered her talent would take her places that she could have never imagined.
5: I just kept going with my gut instinct and what I love to do. I don't remember growing through music or singing and somebody being like, girl, you can blow. You can, girl, you can blow until I started singing out with Full Flavor King and stuff like that.
10: On Fridays before the global pandemic, you could find Faye performing at Lefties on Greenwood, where she would entertain an adult crowd of all ages and ethnicities, drawing them to the dance floor, while some even sang along. We reminisced on those nights at Lefties and how her Friday nights have been since the pandemic.
5: It's not the same at all, girl. I'm just trying to get into the swing of things, I'm like, really, this is the new norm. While the world slowed down,
10: Faye was able to find a clearer path to her destiny as she accepted an appearance on the four-time Emmy award-winning musical competition series The Voice. She confidently walked on stage and performed Demi Lovato's Anyone
11: hundred
10: million,
5: million songs I feel stupid when I sing. No listening to me. Hi, what's your name and where are you from? My name is Faye Moffitt. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma.
12: Oh, wow.
10: During the first round of The Voice, a panel of four judges listens with their backs turned to the stage. If a judge turns their chair around to face the singer, they advance to the next round. As flawlessly as Faye performed, she was not selected to advance. Her fans expressed their disappointment with the judge's decision, calling it the biggest mistake. One Twitter user commented in response, The coaches were turning for a lot of mediocre singers who could barely hit a note or melody but failed to turn for Faye? Ridiculous. Faye thanked all of her fans and supporters, and though disappointed with not advancing, was happy to have had the experience.
5: I stopped, I took a breath, and all of these things were happening, like the voice offer, and me being able to experience something new on a positive side, while I was experiencing something new on a very scary negative side. So everything has balanced itself out. The good has definitely outweighed the bad.
10: For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Mika Nicole in Tulsa.
7: Hear how one Black woman is using her professional experience to provide increased access and opportunity for Black women climbing the corporate ladder or running their own businesses. Kiana Smith shares more.
13: The number of women running Fortune 500 companies has hit a new record high. Currently, there are 37 women leading Fortune 500 firms, an increase from last year's 33. While this could be a moment to celebrate, this statistic does not paint the same picture for Black women in the U.S. Even though we are living in historic times, with Kamala Harris being the first Black and first female vice president, Black women remain underrepresented, only accounting for 1.4% of senior leaders. Various research articles acknowledge Black women face many obstacles in their careers. They face racism and gender bias, and the concept of living with two or more marginalized identities often creates an intersectionality of invisibility as it pertains to the workplace. Our nation is starting to acknowledge the barriers and take action to challenge the systems that confine Black women from entering the C-suite. While businesses are trying to strategize, Carlicia Bradley-Williams is creating opportunities for Black women to achieve more success. Carlicia Bradley-Williams is the founder of Amplify for Women, a professional development program specifically designed to help accelerate the careers of Black women in Oklahoma and beyond. Carlisha, tell us what is Amplify for Women?
9: Amplify for Women exists to provide leadership coaching and community for Black women to accelerate their career and take their professional brand to the next level. Amplify was created in a space for women who are coming out of college, their entry level into their careers all the way through mid and senior level and are looking to elevate their career and their brand to ensure that they are set up for success.
13: Can you explain why Amplify is so important?
9: I think about the ways in which Black women have to navigate corporate America, society as a whole. Many times we are the only in spaces. Sitting at leadership tables or boards or even leading organizations as the only woman of color. And what I find in community is the power that fills me, the space where I can go and be my whole self. It actually rejuvenates me to go back into those spaces and to continue to fight against systemic racism, oppression gender bias, while people say this isolated experience can't provide realistic development, it provides development and so much more. Why are you so driven to do this? Black women are hungry for a space of community with other Black women, but additionally, they're wanting to get the ins and outs to grow in their professional journey.
13: And one of those women is Taylor King, a Chicago charter school leader. What attracted you to Amplify for Women?
14: Black women need a space that is safe, safe enough for us to bring our whole selves. And it needs to be facilitated by us because we're the only ones that truly understand what it feels like to be a Black leader in education. With that safe space, it allows us to feel vulnerable enough to give feedback, but also accept feedback from each other and lean on each other. Prior to Amplify, how did it feel navigating the corporate ladder? We're left supporting the person in that role where we're overqualified for it. And on the other hand, Black women are ask to conform to a white culture, because if we bring our true authentic selves to the workplace, it intimidates our white colleagues and they can't handle it. So when we go up for the promotion and we ask for the feedback, the phrases that are used are such as, oh, she's uncoachable or too direct or doesn't receive feedback. Well, or, not a team player. Those phrases are specifically meant to put us into our place.
13: What is one statement that represents your Amplify experience?
14: When we truly harness our power and understand our worth, we then demand greatness out of everybody.
13: Carlisha, what do you want to say to businesses about investing in Black women?
9: We're taking a stance on racial equity. Neutrality is not a lane that we can sit in. Either you are about investing in diverse talent or you're not. And so when I think about companies that are willing to reach out to an organization like Amplify for Women and say, hey, I want to pay for members of my team to go through your program. I want for them to have a space and community as Black women leaders to grow on their journey. That is you making a statement in and of itself that you are valuing and investing in Black talent. How can people find out more? We have our website at www.amplifyforwomen.com. We're also on Instagram at Amplify for Women, and we have a business page on LinkedIn as well. So I look forward to people reaching out to learn more about Amplify for Women and how we can support you on your career journey or employees within your organization.
13: For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Tiana Smith in Oklahoma
2: City. One of Tulsa's historic districts is joining the city's Main Street Program initiative. The initiative's aim is to support small businesses and entrepreneurs in the area while promoting community. However, some of the district's community members are concerned about who stands to benefit most from the program.
15: Christy Eaton has more. The historic Greenwood District is joining other neighborhoods in Tulsa as part of the Oklahoma Main Street Program. The district joins Kendall-Whittier Main Street, Route 66 Main Street, and East Tulsa Main Street as destination districts. The aim is to promote entrepreneurship and small businesses. It also aims to enhance public spaces to create vibrant communities. Jabbar Shumate is program manager for the historic Greenwood Main Street program. He says a key part of the Main Street program is creating opportunities for economic development.
16: I think a big focus of Main Streets is inclusive economic development. And we've had a lot of attention, but driven by a lot of different stakeholders. One of the key roles, I think, articulated by this Main Street board is how we get communication on one level of understanding that there are at least two chambers that operate in the area.
15: Shoemate notes that 2021 is the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre. A lot of attention has already been placed on Tulsa, and a lot more will come during the year.
16: I think that what makes this program very unique is that most people who live in the community look at the now what, and being a part of the history and legacy of Black Wall Street, where you had wealth driven in a community by small businesses, The focus for Main Street is on small business, and our focus is looking at what comes after this observance and how going through this particular year, then now what is how we can be the engine of helping small businesses or be at the, really at the forefront, Uh, those businesses are the engine, but really be at the forefront of assisting businesses as we try to really replicate the success seen in the Black Wall Street area in its heyday.
15: Louisa Krug is the Destinations District's Manager for the Tulsa Planning Office. She says the historic Greenwood District Main Street program is taking some cues from Kendall Whittier Main Street and Route 66 Main Street.
14: I would say the last year, a lot of it has been setting up the organization. So Kendall Whittier has been a great partner for thinking about booking at documents and things like that that, you know, aren't very exciting, but it's really nice to not be reinventing the wheel. And I think that's a real benefit of ha- us having like four Main Streets in Tulsa is that hopefully, We're all collaborating, and that way people don't feel like they're just starting from scratch.
15: There has been some discussion among residents about tourism in Greenwood, and not everyone supports it. A new history center called Greenwood Rising is currently under development. Shoemate believes the key is to make sure that the smaller operations and vendors remain vibrant and active.
16: Greenwood Rising is going to bring a lot of attention and tourism and the pathway to hope. But there are some individuals and businesses who have been doing tours in the Greenwood area for a long time, and we need to make sure that those vendors who have been there well before the concept of a race massacre or history center or pathway of hope existed, that those individuals that have been there don't fade away because they may not be connected with the Tulsa Race Massacre Commission, which receives quite a bit of attention and obviously has some strong and big names attached to it. For
15: Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Christy Eaton in North Tulsa.
7: Now we set our sights on Tallahassee, where a future hub for Black education is breaking ground. Crystal Patrick has more on the historic development in this historic town.
17: Many may find themselves to be surprised to hear that in pre- and early statehood, Oklahoma was home to more all-black towns and settlements than any other state or territory in the country. Tallahassee, a town about two hours from the capital of Oklahoma, was the state's very first all-black town. Although the population has dwindled over the last 100 years, something new is on the horizon that may secure Tallahassee's reemergence as a thriving community. In 2020, it became the future site of what will be Oklahoma's only black boarding school. I sat down with Simone Davis, the woman behind this idea, who is working around the clock to make her dream a reality. Ms. Davis is from Kansas City, but her
18: Oklahoma roots run deep. My ancestors are from the Muskogee area, my great-great-grandmother migrated from Muskogee to Kansas City in the
17: 1940s. In a sense, I have returned home. Ms. Davis has lived all around the world and has been an educator in some of the nation's most challenging school systems. I
18: was in school working on a second master's. This one was in education. I was teaching 11th and 12th grade students at Washington High School in Kansas City, Kansas. and in and out of the education spaces and fed up with what I was seeing, what I was experiencing. I'm very spiritual. So one night after praying and worshiping, I went to bed and in the middle of my sleep, I heard this voice say, you are to start a black boarding school.
17: Prior to the 1970s, there were 100 black boarding schools in the United States. These schools made up a significant part of the educational infrastructure for blacks between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. So
18: this idea, I'm starting something completely new. Like, actually, no, I'm bringing back the past.
17: I'm bringing back the way in which we actually used to educate our children. Miss Davis met with the mayor of Tallahassee, Keisha Curran, to visit the town as a possible location for the boarding school. I reached out to the mayor after the PBS documentary,
18: and we established a relationship to the point where I actually traveled
17: and visited Tallahassee. Learning about the community of Tallahassee and its history from Mayor Curran helped Miss Davis to solidify her decision to build the school here. I did not
18: know at that time Tallahassee had a boarding school. Like, I didn't know that the Creek Nation gave this land to the freedmen. I did not know any of these things. It's because of the mayor and her firmness and
17: saying, I want your school here, that started this whole journey. In fact, her vision for the school resonated so much with Mayor Curran that Ms. Davis became the city manager of Tallahassee. This new role has made her an official member of this community. The cost and benefits of the educational system in America have been much cause for debate over the last 65 years since Brown versus the Board of Education. We are in a time of
18: education space where we're trying to figure out how to teach, how to be culturally aware, how to be mindful of implicit biases. If you look at the the, the current education scene, we have majority of white teachers who are in spaces of urban environments and teaching black and brown children. I see the need of a sense of a belonging for the black child, an affirmation that you're okay, that you are beautiful who you are, regardless of where you come from. There's just been a lot of shifts that's happened in the education space for black Americans, and I think that it's timely to revisit the past, to look at the future.
17: Ms. Davis, and Mayor Kern as well, Both have a vision of returning to the standard of excellence that was historically black education. Building the school in the first all-black town in Oklahoma, which previously had a black boarding school and a black university, they stand at the forefront of a return to black excellence in every area of life. The town began in 1850 when the Creek Nation constructed a school at this site on Texas Road. By 1881, the population of freedmen had increased in the area, while the number of Native Americans had declined. The Creek Council then transferred the Creek children to another school and gave the town of Tallahassee to the freedmen. Keisha Kern is the mayor of Tallahassee. The town grew with businesses, doctor's offices, it even had a bed and breakfast, a movie theater, and not to mention a boarding school. That school eventually closed and ended up being Flipper Davis College. The journey of the Black Boarding School from an idea to actualization came shortly after Ms. Davis contacted Mayor Curran. Once she contacted me, she said, hey, I've seen the documentary, I want to meet. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen it. I don't even know what I'm gonna say, but I'm like, of course, yes, come on down. It was an immediate connection. Her energy, her passion on wanting to know drew me in. So we literally walked around Tallahassee. I told her the things that I knew about the town. I showed her where the school was. Mayor Kern is not only proud about the history of Tallahassee, but also is excited for what is happening in the present that is leading to a thriving future for the town. Education is key for so many opportunities. History is lacking without Black history, especially in Oklahoma. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Crystal Patrick in Tullah Hasti.
0: You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma.
3: Hi, I'm Matthew Beriapa, host of KOSU's music podcast, No Cover. There, I have conversations with musical artists, like how Black musicians are creating music at the intersection
6: of race in Oklahoma.
4: Why do we have these like low-key racist like specifications for how we classify art?
6: When I think of the question, "What is the soundtrack of the Black Lives Matter movement?" I can't think of any other place but Oklahoma.
3: Listen to No Cover on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: KOSU is nonprofit radio. More than half of our funds come from the community, listeners just like you. Join thousands of listeners and donate now at KOSU.org.
2: Our next story is about one man's efforts to help a man on death row fight for his life after he says he's been wrongly convicted by a racially biased criminal justice system. Here's Negro Spiritual 121.
19: Emmy award-winning rapper and entrepreneur J.B. Williams with a small group of dedicated friends set out to make a difference in one man's life and change the tide of injustice in the criminal justice system of Oklahoma with a powerful statement that took 131 miles to make. Julius Jones was sentenced to the death penalty in 2002 and has served 22 years for the 1999 murder of Paul Howe. Jones has vehemently and consistently denied having any involvement in the murder. JB and attorney Francie Equ explain how they came up with the idea.
11: We were sitting at Jess Eddy's birthday party. Jess Eddie is one of the Walker. We're constantly about what can we do for Julius. Julius stepped on our minds, all of us. We're sitting at Just Eddie's birthday party and other people might do certain activities at birthday parties, but we think about activism. What's next? We were kind of having one of our usual conversations like that. And I was talking about what I heard someone else had done for people incarcerated at another facility. And we were kind of going on, and on over that act of love and it was completely different it was nothing like this walk that we did we just kind of kept thinking and couldn't really land on anything and we celebrated Jess. we had cake and we all went home then that night jb texted and he said let's walk we said what he said let's walk from okc to mcallister
19: Criminal justice reform has been a hot-button topic for many years, and picking one person to select as the face of a movement is difficult and important. J.B. explains why Julius.
4: Being able to see the story play out with the documentary, then learn more about the case. I think for a lot of us, that's the work that we want to do for everybody. It has to start with one, and I think that he's the perfect candidate for us to get behind He went in when he was a child, you know what I'm saying? The fact that people like Bob Macy made his career on killing people just adds to it. And I felt like I had went all these years just thinking like, oh, that's just another dude got caught up until I saw the documentary, you know what I mean? I'm actually in the documentary. I play all the scenes with Liddell are me. I'm like filming it. I'm just doing a role, you know? And then I'm I'm talking to the producer. I'm like, wait, what is this? This Like, what, what is this? He's telling me that it happened here, and and I'll start putting to it. I'm thinking, oh, dang, this is only from John Marshall. But I think that his case is so undeniably corrupt. It's disgusting and perverted
19: how he was done. When engaging in a civil rights action, there is a desired outcome. However, you know you may not reach that desired outcome because the success of your mission rests on other people who are actively opposed to your beliefs, finally seeing your point of view or at the least respecting your efforts enough to re-examine their stance on the issue. JB and Francie explain.
4: It was painful, but it was powerful for all of us. We had some fun times, we had some rough times, but it had to be done. We all went in and knowing it it wasn't going to be
11: easy. I'm a person of faith, and the whole time I'm walking, I'm thinking... I'm excited to do this for Julius, and I really want to see this and other efforts actually work and set Julius free. But I get on the phone with Julius, and he's telling me, hey, even if your efforts don't work to set me free, maybe your efforts will at least work to change the criminal justice system and maybe save somebody else's life. And I didn't like that. I didn't want to hear that from him. What he was trying to say is we don't necessarily get to choose how this walk is going to be received or what the impact of it is going to be. You know, it may not happen or it may not be exactly the way we think it's going to happen, but we're doing it anyway because we believe in him. We believe in his freedom. We're showing this act of love because no matter what, this just isn't right.
19: Francie explains how people who do not work in the criminal justice system can actively get involved to affect change.
11: I think people who are not necessarily working in the criminal justice system as legal professionals, what they can do is make sure you are voting with education, educated voting. Know who we are placing in leadership in our communities because that is ultimately affecting how many people are vulnerable to the criminal justice system and in what ways they are vulnerable, and then how they're treated once they're in the criminal justice system. Recognize that you do have that voting power. You vote for a lot of people who play a role in... Making sure that criminal justice reform either happens or doesn't happen. Every single person in leadership in your local community is making decisions that affect you, the people you love.
19: We know Francie is an attorney who has dedicated her life to justice. But after embarking on this challenging journey, will criminal justice reform be a new life purpose for JB?
4: i think these are things that should be everybody's life's purpose to the point where if it was anybody else we would all probably do the same thing you know injustice is injustice julia's sister said that none of us are free unless julius is free and that's true because if we allow this to happen then that just continues to cycle to where it could happen to any of us so none of us are truly free until he's free so it's not that it's this is some life purpose that we've taken up This is life or death. We care enough for life to want to show up and do what's right. It is legit a human being whose life is being taken
19: for a crime we did not commit. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Negro Spiritual, One Twenty One in Oklahoma City.
7: Black History 1 is a yearly reminder that black history is American history. For our last piece, Rayton Quincy reminds us that we aren't just in the news, we make it.
12: So, there's a chance you've already figured out who I am. Hmm. Maybe how I talk. Hmm. Or what approach I may use to deliver this. My hair is nappy, naturally. And intentionally. Yes. I could straighten it, but that ain't me. Mm -mm. I line it up on occasion when I feel like it, not for anyone else. I have facial hair, and I don't smile much. When I do, it's infectious, contagious. It makes up for the drought. Jeez. My son says I'm intimidating. He's 10. His friends are all in the correct grade. They're about five foot one, five foot two. They can all read. Brilliant. He's a great child that makes great child mistakes. So I don't pull the belt out much. That ain't me. Not me at all. So from his perspective, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. He's seen me on TV, news, YouTube. He smiles. His friends have told him they've heard me on the radio. They smile, he smiles, they joke, <laughs> you ugly. You your daddy's son. Hey. hey, hey. They joke also, but sometimes not, but kinda. Your daddy look like mm-hmm. hey. He looked like your daddy. Him over there. But not intimidating. Familiar. Yeah. Cool. Them. Yeah. But taller. With features that their pre-adolescence has not matured to. Just yet. Hair nappy. Them too. Yep. Intentionally. They could straighten it, but that ain't them. At all. We. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We, yellow tape, perception that all of us, that all of us on that side of the lens, me and my son and his friends, we, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, mm-hmm. Cincinnati yo, Ave, doesn't yo. stop downtown. The boulevard goes farther south than Bixby, farther south than Dixie, Deep. farther north than Tasty Free. That's right. We make the news so often that we make the news rarely. Callous Journalism. To the predator, us, fear that their neighbors, the ones who celebrate loud and proud, careless journalism, misunderstood, but when Hollywood capitalizes, Mm -hmm. it captivates. First criticizes, Mm -hmm. then celebrates. First dictates un-American till American rich capture American rich babies Mm -hmm. dabbing and twerking and maybe daddy jigging to the brown un-American poor. Poor, poor, poor brown babies, poor brown babies, poor, brown, rich, with confidence on this clicking side of the lens. Now we make the news. Little you's and little me's, yours and mine. There's more to the caution tape. There's more than the caution tape, but take caution. Our news is intimidating. Uncomfortable truth. We make the news. We make the news. Now we make the news. Change the lens. Change it. Change the lens. Change the lens. Change it. Shoot again. Click the pen. Click click, 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 rewrite, and rewrite, and rewrite again. Again. We make the news. With Focus Black Oklahoma, I am Britton Quincy in Tulsa.
14: Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Our theme music is by Moffitt Music. Our contributing music artists on this broadcast are Matt Leone and their stand empires and Dr. View. Our executive producer is Quraysh Ali Lansana. Associate producers are Bracken Clark and Ali Shaw. Visit us online at KOSU.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at
1: Focus Black OK. Support for Focus Black Oklahoma on the KOSU Podcast Network comes from the Black Church Traditions and African-American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary with a weekly chapel service celebrating Black History and African Heritage Month, online at wherefaithleads.com slash heritage.